Our guest today is a best-selling author in both the U.S. and the U.K., even though he doesn't live in either country. He's also signed a TV series development agreement without the help of an agent, a publicist, or a publisher. So how did he do it? Not just independently, but from afar. What were his strategies and how can you learn from his hard-learned lessons to help you in your writing journey? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Sumstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. Jack Ellum, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Hi, Thomas. It's great to be here. So tell us, how did you get started writing thrillers and crime fiction? If you go back to 1995, I tried my hand at writing a thriller book because um, I just wasn't happy at work. I, I was an accountant and I was bored and I thought, look, I'd give my hand at writing a thriller book. And it was an absolute disaster. I tried to copy the mainstream books that were out there. So fast forward another 15 or 20 years or so. And I tried in, in 2018. I said, look, I'm going to write a thriller book. But I didn't know what to write. I didn't have an idea of where I would start. So a friend gave me some great advice. He said, look, go to your bookshelf and look at all the books that you've purchased, all the fiction books that you've purchased. And then go to your video cabinet and pull out all the DVDs and look at all the, the videos that you like to watch. I guess nowadays it's, you know, look at all the uh, Netflix shows that you've got earmarked that you want to watch and write what you like to read, write like what you want to watch on TV, want to watch on, on streaming. And so I thought, well, there's a lot of crime shows I like to watch, a lot of thriller shows, psychological thrillers. So the genre sort of stood out from there. And I decided I'd write a series. I, I used to read a lot of Lee Child and I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll come up with a character, similar character to Jack Reacher and a traveling ex Secret Service agent who's been kicked out of the Secret Service for punching the vice president. And he now just travels the small back roads and small towns of the US. And I started my No Justice series. And I aimed it, I did some research at the beginning. And I think this is probably a good tip for people that decide on a market, decide on your demographic, who you're writing for. People say, look, just write for yourself, but that's great. But you, you need to grow a market. You need to grow a following. So I did a lot of research and found out that women are voracious readers. So I wasn't going to write a, a, an erotic thriller, but what I wanted to write was something that was fast-paced and something that appealed to a, to a female audience because at the end of the day, they were the, the biggest demographic of who read in the world. So I designed a, a series of books about this guy that travels and, and every town that he goes to, he runs into problems and squabbles and power struggles and... I came up with the idea that the worst villains hide in the smallest towns, and that's where my No Justice series kicked off from in in 2018. So I was had some great success. I was, you know, five books in, and then I I wrote a I, I wrote a standalone. The real success came for me, I guess, was I was in Maryland back in I believe 2019, and I got lost with my wife. We were on we were driving, got lost on this back road. And we came out near this gated community high up on a ridge. And there were five houses up on this ridge. And I said to my wife, I said, I wonder what happens behind those closed doors in those houses. We planned to leave Maryland, but I stayed there for a couple of extra days and I outlined a book. And I guess my best 
series, my best book to date was Mill Point Road, which is what I wrote while I was traveling around Maryland. And it's probably the best success that you have when it's not forced, it's not planned, it just comes to you. And that book came out in 2020, got some good traction, and then just got picked up, sales started to increase, and Amazon picked it up, um, started pushing it, and everything else went off off the back of that standalone book. And to give you an idea, it's got over 2,000 ratings and reviews on Amazon and on Audible, which uh, Amazon now shows me by default, which I really like. But I want to go back on your story a little bit. So you first started writing a book back in the 90s. Did you finish that book or just kind of get started and give up on it? I gave up on it. I wrote probably 5,000 words. I looked at the 5,000 words and said, no, this is this isn't going to work. It was more of a distraction. And so that got shelled. It was more of a science fiction genre. So I gave up on that. And then I had a long hiatus in between, did, did nothing. And I planned, I guess, in 2016, 2017 to sell my business and just say, look, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to put my back against the wall and just start writing. And, and that's what I did. And so you just started writing full-time right out of the gate, kind of as a second career? In the last 12 months of my business, while I was getting it ready for sale, I was writing. I was getting up early in the morning, getting up at 4 or 5 a.m., squeezing in a couple of hours before work. If I'd got a lot of work done, I'd then start writing at 3 in the afternoon. I'd get home, have dinner, go to my office um, at home at about 8 and write a couple of more hours. So I was squeezing it in between running the business, which is what I imagine a lot of um, budding authors do. They they try and fit it around their full-time job, and that's what I was doing. There was no weekends. My weekends were all gone. And then when I sold my business in 2018, then I could concentrate full-time on, on writing. And and that is the right way to do it. Don't quit your day job until your writing is bringing in enough money uh, to replace your day job. You want to jump from a sure thing to a sure thing. Unless, you know, you're retiring, you know, you, and you've got some savings set aside of the rules change a little bit. So how long did it take you to write those initial five, four or five books? Um, I was productive, probably putting out two, two books a year. And then when I went full time, I was putting out four books a year. I've cut that back now. My production's cut back because those, look, those first books were, were good, really good. I've gone back and re-edited them and rewritten some of them. But I was, I have a production table now where I look to put out two to three or maybe four books a year. Yeah. So walk us through that process because some people are like, you can rework a book that's already out there. And the answer is yes. If you're independent, you can go back and fix an old book. So, and, and that's not at all uncommon for indie authors. They go back and they reread their first book after they write a few books and they're like, who wrote this? Who is this idiot? <laughs> I can do way better than this. And then they're like, Oh wait, it's me. I can do better than this. And then they go in and clean it up a bit. So what was, what did that process look like for you? Well, I started, I guess I went and look at the beginning, your books are, you're learning and you never stop learning your craft. So I decided after say the fifth book and a few other standalones, I will go back and, and that was always the plan because at the beginning you're, you're, you're still learning. It's not going to be your best work. So then I progressively at the same time as um, producing a new book, I'll be also in the background rewriting one of the previous books because as the years go by, there's you just have these niggling feelings, oh, that book number three, I didn't like the ending, I, I wanted to do this. 
or oh, I needed to remove a character. I'd probably take about a month to to go through the manuscript and just tighten it up and, and get rid of waffle and get rid of some of the word count that doesn't need to be there and just tighten up the book overall. So it takes about a month, then it goes back into, into production. I'm going to do a cover refresh in the next 12 months of, of all that series. But yeah, it's a process where I think you've got to continuously be improving as, as you get better as an author. There's nothing wrong with going back and, and just doing tweaks to the, to the books if you're not happy with them. And this is a new approach to writing, which wasn't really technologically possible 20 years ago. Because what enables this is the fact that the books are read by on electronic copies. And so you make changes to the ebook copy, it immediately gets pushed out to everyone who hasn't yet read the book. And I believe, well, the, everyone who hasn't downloaded it yet, they purchased it, but don't download it. When they download it, they'll get the most recent copy. And if they already have it, I think they're given a prompt asking if they want to update but even for the paper copies, the books are printed on demand, which means that you push up a new manuscript. Everyone who orders the book from this point forward gets the new book. And so the book becomes more like a web page where it can evolve and grow. So you go to a Wikipedia page today and you know, it has some information. You go there in a few years, it has more information. You can treat a book that way, but only if you're indie. <laughs> but it can be a solid strategy. And this is, we actually have an episode on this. It's the, called the relaunch strategy, where you take an older book and you edit it, you rework the title, sometimes you rework the cover, and you relaunch it. And some authors see incredible success because the idea, you know, that got them started on their career was a good idea, but their skills have gotten a lot better. And that when they take those new skills, they apply it to their old work. What they end up with is something that's really strong. Yeah, and and in trad trad publishing too, I've noticed. I read a couple of books last year, and they're starting to do that as well. So, it's not just for indie. I actually read a book that was written, um, published in 1995, and they mentioned Facebook in it, and they mentioned cellular cell phones, and they mentioned the internet and social media. So, what had happened is that obviously, for one of the big hitting authors, they have a team of editors that will go back and say, "Hey, let's take that book from the 90s and." And bring it up to date. And they went back and they and they embedded modern day technology in the book. And um, even though the first edition came out in I think the mid nineties, and so it's it's you may see trad publishers starting to do that slightly because they they want to attract new readers, younger readers, and those readers can relate to oh yeah Facebook and yeah Instagram and people had cell phones and were texting and so on, and they don't want to talk about the fact that they had a a huge desktop computer or. <laughs> They had a brick as a mobile phone back in the. Well, there was, or there weren't any mobile phones, cell, cellular phones. They used a mobile phone as the murder weapon, right? <laughs> <laughs> Taking club it, so clubs it. to death with it. That's it. Yeah, which is, I think, a challenge, particularly for reworking a thriller, right? Because one of the challenges you face as a thriller author is the why don't they just call the police question, right? Which in the olden days was easier, right? It's like, oh, well, there's no telephone here, or the line has been cut. But now with everyone with the phone in their pocket, you have to come up with more creative reasons for why don't people just call the police. Uh, and, you know, that's always a, a fun challenge uh, to navigate as an author. Yeah, I often, I, my go-to is, oh, there's no, they've got no signal, they've lost cellular signal. <laughs> They're in the middle of Manhattan and they've lost, <laughs> they've lost coverage. <laughs> How can that be? <laughs> Sadly, all too believable. <laughs> yes. 
now you went independent with your books. All of your books, I think, are published independently. What caused you to go the independent route? Because I imagine now, especially with how well your books are selling, you could be traditionally published if you wanted to. So why why go independent? It, it always was a plan at the beginning, Thomas, because as I said, I needed to learn the craft. I needed to understand my readers. I needed to build up a following. So I didn't submit any of my manuscripts at the beginning. I wanted to see how I wrote the first couple of books, improve what I was doing, um, and use it as a test bed, use it as an experiment to say, okay, build a readership, build a platform, build a following, and then maybe after the fourth or fifth book, look at the traditional um, path, which meant I was always looking at to, to traditionally publish, but I wasn't good enough. I looked back at those early manuscripts and thought, look, they've got to be better than that. If I had submitted them, it would have been embarrassing. So the fact that you can be independent, you can be hybrid and have both trad as well as indie publishing under your belt, it's the best of both worlds. So now I've reached a point where I am submitting directly to publishing houses. They're asking me, okay, what have you got next? What's in development in the next 12 months? We may not like this project, but tell us what you've got on the on the go. It comes back to if you're entrepreneurial enough is to is to use the platforms that you've got there for ebooks, for what Kobo do, Apple, um, Amazon. And I was decided from the beginning I was going to experiment and get down pat my, my writing style before I looked at going down the traditional path. The traditional path is always the end game because I think the reach that, that traditional publishers have in terms of books into bookstores is far beyond, even though you've got in print on demand, I think the reach that they have is quite significant. But th that gap is closing. That gap really is closing. Yeah, with paper, it's really hard with print-on-demand to price your books cheap enough to make it worth it for everyone in a brick-and-mortar bookstore to sell the book. Because while print-on-demand is cheaper you know, to get 100 bucks than it used to be back in the day, it's still like two or three times more expensive per book than an offset print run of 20000 or 100000 Like. like when Scholastic was printing a million copies of the Harry Potter books, they may have only been spending a million or two million dollars to print those, right? Because they're getting them in these vast quantities from these super printers in China. And when you're getting your book for $2 and you're selling it for $20, there's a lot of ways of making sure everyone up and down the supply chain is well uh, compensated and incentivized <laughs> to make that book sell well. But when you're paying $4 or $7 per copy for your book, it's suddenly you're having to price it in a way where the brick and mortar model doesn't work as well. Yeah. And this is probably where a strategy for your, for your listeners, I changed everything on my word count 18 months ago because I wanted to maximize the, the paper royalty from Amazon. My books typically are 80 to 90,000 words, and I was getting 8 to 10% royalty. So then I worked out a formula, and no one tells you this, because I wasn't making any money. You're correct. I wasn't making any money in terms of my royalty, minimal money on um, print books. So then I worked out that if I wrote a 65,000 word book at a 11 font pitch, that would be 250 uh, pages, and I could sell that at 9.99, which was the mass market price comparison to books that you see in Walmart or Barnes and Noble or when you're at the Ireland CVS. You have to be competitive and competition was nine ninety nine for a mass market paperback for the big authors. So if I pulled my 
um, production count back to 250 pages at 65,000 words, I found I could maximize my paperback royalty at about 20%. And that was a game changer for me. And it also meant that my books were faster, my prose was tighter, they were more page-turning. So it was a win-win for me and the reader. The reader got a book that was better structured, there was less waffle, it focused on the pace and the characters and it was a quicker read. So that was something that I, I worked out 18 months ago and it changed everything. I 100% agree. If you'd have listened to Novel Marketing, uh, we did talk about this, but not, we actually only talked about it four or five months ago, I think. So it wouldn't have helped you at the time. We, we hadn't covered the ideal length pricing wise, but what you point out about making the book tighter, I think is totally true. Oftentimes, a little bit of constraint where our creativity is constrained is actually what helps give our creativity its its most um, glorious manifestation. Right? It's what's the difference between a rifle bullet and a firecracker? It's the focus of the barrel, right? It's the constraint of the barrel forcing all of the gunpowder to go in just one direction and forcing yourself. Oh, I normally write a three hundred or three hundred fifty page book. I'm going to tell that same story in two hundred fifty pages, which means it's got to be fast paced. That makes for this genre especially. It's exactly what people are looking for, right? They want a page turner and a thriller. Uh, maybe it'll be a little bit different if it were uh, science fiction or epic fantasy where people are wanting something longer. Although, you know what? If it's epic fantasy, you can always sell them another book, right? Instead of two 300 word books, consider writing, or sorry, one 300 word book, right? consider writing two 200 word books, right? So stretch it out, create a longer series and if people like the first one they'll go on and they'll read the second one yeah what advice would you give to indie authors who are just getting started what were some things uh, other than the you know don't write a super long book because the economics don't work what other advice would you give your past self you're going to be stuck with writing a series or writing a type of genre for quite a while so pick something that you like reading don't jump into or don't dip your toes into a genre that you're not familiar with, that you're not familiar with the audience, what they like, what they don't like. You're just doing it because you happen to see a lot of those books being sold. So if you don't read epic fantasy or science fiction, don't try and write something like Dune. Write something that you are going to enjoy um, being with for the next couple of months because it's a long process. So that was, that's probably my, my number one. And, and don't give up. Like you're, And this is a second piece of advice. The first book is only a test, a test bed. So is the second, so is the third. New authors, you have to think about this as being a long game. I always come back to Dean Koontz, who I think wrote 32 books before his first one was actually hit the bestseller list. And you've got to take that mindset as an author. It's your fifth or sixth book that will hit the bestseller list if you keep at it, if you keep improving. And those first few books got you to that point. They're not wasted time. It's it's putting the skills into the bank for that fourth or fifth book that will, will rise up the chart. So be persistent and write what you enjoy reading. I do think you need to keep the reader in mind. And so don't just write for yourself, but don't like pick some very foreign genre. I think your point is very well made. If you've never read an epic fantasy book in your life, you're like, oh, man, Brandon Sanderson, he's making so much money. He made $6 million selling a 10-year-old book. I'm going to do that. It's like you have to be willing to read the books in your genre and familiarize yourself with it. And, and back to how your story began where you looked at your bookshelf and you're like, I own a bunch of books in this genre. 
that is really important craft development, being well-read in the genre you want to write in so you know what a good book looks like, right? You probably had books on your shelf that you didn't like, right? You read all these books and you're like, oh, these ones I really liked. Here's the ones I didn't like. And you started to develop your taste of what looks good and what didn't look good. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't understand when some authors say I don't have time to read. I don't have the time to read fiction in my genre. The fact that I read probably two books a month in my genre has helped me unbelievably as an author and getting my craft to, to be better. I agree 100%, as does Stephen King. <laughs> so if you read his book on writing, he talks about how he just reads and reads and reads. And he listens to audiobooks like me, actually, as well. And he, he gets to the point where he's read everything in his genre. And so he has to kind of expand outside of his genre to find new stuff to read. And I think that that is really one of the things that contributes to his success. Now, Jack, one of the challenges that you faced is that you don't live in the United States and you don't live in the UK. And the UK and the United States are not like each other. I mean, they're similar in some ways, but as Winston Churchill said, it's two great empires separated by a common language. So you're way down under. What was it like writing for these foreign markets and what did you do to get your book to be so successful in them? From day one, Thomas, I decided the U.S. market was where I was going to base my books. All my books are based in the U.S. All the language and spelling and terminology is, is U.S.-based. I have uh, proofreaders and editors that are in the U.S. and understand that. I have actually have specific different editors, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, because as you know, within America, it's almost like you have different dialects, different terminology. And I made that decision right from the beginning from a commercial side of it. I travel a lot to the States. I've lived in dozens of places in America too. And that was not purely for my books, but purely because I, I enjoy traveling. I enjoy being in the States and I enjoy being in the UK. If it wasn't for what's happened in the last, you know, 12, 18 months, I'd be, I'd be living in the, in the US now. And in fact, I am shifting, packing up and, and as soon as we open up, I'll be moving into the States because that's where my market is. So. It was still difficult, I guess, with the isolation, but with technology and with the internet and with contractors you can bring on all over the world, you can write from anywhere. And, and that's the key. If, if you feel that your market is maybe in India or maybe in, in the UK or maybe in Scandinavia, you can write for that market. You can write in that market. I find it hard when, when authors try to write a book and they've never been to that country and they rely on Google Maps or they rely on on Wikipedia to find out, okay, that town in, in Maryland or that town in Washington County, you know, you can have a street view of it, but it's not, the, it's not the same as being there. So when I am in the States and I spend a lot of time in there, I'm doing a lot of research and a lot of on-the-ground writing. So it, it's, I think you can be anywhere in the world and still be a bestseller, but it's, it's a choice that you've got to make that I want to be embedded in my market, which is, which is effectively the U.S., you got to understand your reader. You got to understand how they tick. And you know, if you're writing for an American reader and your only exposure to Americans is what you see in Hollywood, uh, you know, you're going to come to America and be like, "These people are nothing like what I saw on television," <laughs> especially outside of LA, right? Because almost all media is created in this one county in in the United States. In fact, even most YouTubers are in that same county, and it gives you a real distorted picture of of the rest of the country. 
And I will say traveling as a writer often has some huge tax advantages. And this is one of the things we talk about in our course, the Tax and Legal Guide mm. for Authors, is when you can make travel tax deductible as an author and how to do that, right? The, the, when, when you can get away with it, when you can't, we look at the actual tax court cases of when authors have won their cases and got to have a tax deductible trip and when they lost their cases and did not. Um, but it, it is totally legitimate, right? Like, J Jack, you weren't traveling because you're trying to get a tax deduction. You're traveling because you were doing research for your work. And arguably, everything was research. You're, t you're at a gas station chit-chatting with people, right? And you're seeing, oh, my goodness, you still buy gas in gallons here, right? There's all <laughs> kinds of little things that's research that you wouldn't uh, think of it as research, but it's getting to understand the culture and getting to understand the place. Correct. It's all part of the business, the business side of, of being an author. So I do have one question I've always wanted to ask a foreign author, and that is the specific blocking and tackling of how you handle the money, because you're making money in U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. So have you formed a U.S. LLC to receive those U.S. dollars and to pay your, your expenses in dollars, or are you pulling that into Australian dollars and then converting it back into US dollars to pay your expenses. No, no, I I do it everything through through the US. So everything is set up in terms of of the American uh, market, the American royalties into an American bank account, and the tax implications are all handled through IRS through through the state. Mm -hmm. So we've. So you're a US taxpayer. Correct. <laughs> you don't get to vote, but you do get to pay taxes. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's um, it. And, and you, I imagine you register your copyright with the United States Copyright Office, or do you register them with the Australian? Correct. No, no, it's purely, it's, it's, and once again, it comes back to that plan at the beginning to say, where do you want to be in the, in the, as an author in the next 10 years? Uh, which market do you want to be in? And set up your structures and set up your taxation correctly. So everything is, is registered in the U.S. So for all intents and purposes, you're an American author from a legal perspective. Correct. It's American dollars. You just happen to not have been born here, and you don't live here at the moment, but you'll get back once the, because you may not know this, those of you listening, but Australia has gone back to a prison island. You're not allowed to leave without permission from the government. <laughs> so you can't. He, he can't come here, uh, which no one saw that coming, right? That, no. that it would be that level of lockdown. So, But then now that begs a question, because your books are also best-selling books in the U.K., so what are you doing in the UK? Do you have a UK? I know they don't have LLCs there, but they have something similar. Or are you doing that through your American entity? Yeah, they have PLC. I've got a, a UK entity as well. So once again, the royalty bank account, everything's set up in the in the UK for that separation. And I haven't really pushed hard into the into the UK, but I may release a book down the track that's that is based in England. So a thriller book. So that will that may be in the pipeline. But I've set up separate structures. So UK separate and the U.S. is separate. Or have one of your characters pull a James Bond. One of the appeals of a James Bond story is that each act takes place not just in a different country, but typically a different continent. So That's it. It's like going on vacation with James Bond, except you see the world through the eyes of a super assassin. So somebody chase somebody to, to England for the second act and then back to wherever in the States they came from. Yes. It, and this is the sort of thing. It's like, oh, no, that's creative. You know, why let the business influence the creative? It's like, no, that that can work. And it can be a, a good tactic. You can overdo it. 
you can make a say a whole Marvel movie that takes place in China, and then China still doesn't let you show your Marvel movie in China. Not that that would ever happen, <laughs> but That's it. doing a little bit of it can add some good flavor. And again, it creates that uh, creative constraint. It's like, oh, I'm yeah. trying to reach this new audience. You know, I I want people in Texas to I see my sales aren't in Texas as good as they could be. So I'm going to go visit Texas. I'm going to have one of my characters visit Texas and I want to incorporate Texas culture into part of one of the stories. And then suddenly people in Texas may be more interested in your book and then they go and download your other books and you've now introduced your book to a whole new set of readers. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in terms of marketing, how, how did you get the word out in the UK? So with the UK, I, started running Facebook ads, geographically targeting UK readers. So that was my main push. If I'm going to go into a new market, whether it be Canada or um, France or Germany or Italy or any other part, I will design a Facebook ad strategy to target that particular territory. And then the second part of that is to look at, and it's heavily Facebook-based, is to look at authors, UK authors, um, that write similar books to mine, similar genres, and then I will go to their Facebook page and invite their followers to also follow myself. So it was very much a targeted approach of going into a market, finding who the readers are, finding who the like authors are, and targeting their readers as well, and then following that up with, with Facebook ads. And how much would you say you spend on Facebook ads in a given month? In a given month, it would probably average out to maybe two to three grand a month. Okay. And some of you may have fallen out of your chair, like two or three thousand dollars. And is that a, but really for a successful indie, that's very normal. And you're getting that back plus a lot more, right? The, the ads pay for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. On average. Yeah. It, there's an ROI. There's a return. It's it's at one point it was better than putting money on the stock market because you'd give a dollar, you'd get three back and within 90 days. So. And, and it ebbs and flows. There's peaks and troughs, but it's, that's low. I know, I know a lot of, um, indie authors. They'd be, and this may come as a shock to your listeners, but I know a few indie authors. They're spending at least a hundred grand a month, yeah. but they're getting it back. They're getting more than that back. It's, it's a, it's simple math. And you're doing the math the whole time. You don't start by taking your inheritance and be like, okay, I heard somebody's spending $100,000 a month, so next month I'm going to drop $100,000. No, 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 no. <laughs> you, you learn how to spend $500 profitably, and then you ramp it to 1000 and you just keep growing it slowly and steadily, and you take the returns that you're making from the advertising and you sow them back, right? So each bigger harvest, you have more seeds to put into the next harvest, and you're also learning better how to better optimize those ads because you can take courses on advertising and you can listen to episodes. We have episodes on advertising, but nothing really beats the spending your own money and digging in the charts and just fiddling around with it. And also Facebook is constantly in flux. And so finding little things that no one else is doing to that give you that little edge can really help. Yeah, sure. So other than Facebook advertising, what else are you doing to promote your books? With Amazon, and this is a word of advice to, to indie authors, is take whatever deal they throw you away. If they give you a countdown deal, if they throw you what they call a gold box deal, if they throw you a exclusive deal, a prime deal, take whatever deal Amazon throws your way. A lot of indie authors that I know say, oh, I'm not going to, you don't make any money. Amazon make all the money when they, when they give you a deal. As I said at the beginning, you've got to play the long game. 
at first I, I turned down Amazon deals because I, I didn't think they were profitable. But then I picked up a few of the deals and two or three months later, the books took off purely because they, they're the biggest bookstore in the world. They know their readers. They know how to sell books. And I always tell this to, to, to first time authors. Don't focus on selling your books to your readers. Focus on someone like Amazon or Kobo or Apple selling your books to their readers because they've got a lot more readers. When I changed that marketing mindset, my sales took off and like we had a promotion just a couple of days ago and we picked up through Amazon and everything just went through the roof. So through that natural organic growth, when the readers, when they push your book out to their huge database, um, you'll get a long-term growth in, in your book sales. So that was one of the key strategies to, to really get growth is to take any deal that Amazon give you and look at the long-term two to three months down the track and how that affects your book sales. Because then, as you said, those readers will pick up your first book, may never have read anything of yours. Pick up one book that Amazon have pushed. Oh yeah, I like this author. Then they'll go and you'll get natural growth and they'll go and pick up your other books. And so that's one of the strategies that, that it's critical. Take any deal that these platforms send your way. Because getting offered a deal is a big honor. Amazon only gives those deals to the top 1% or maybe top 5% of authors. And, you know, yeah. Some of you are listening, what a, what a, what's an Amazon deal? Well, to him who has, more is given. And so the, Amazon's got a whole box of goodies uh, for you. Once you're successful a little bit, they'd be like, oh, we're going to open up the goodie box and offer you a goodie. But you have to take it, right? Because they can't force the deal on you. But take the goodie. <laughs> because let's say... A million people download your, one of your books for free, right? Not that that, not that the goodies are ever that extreme, but you're going to win if you have more than one book because now you have a million people reading and talking about your book, and now it's the buzz, and all your other books are going to sell well. So, I 100% agree. Focus on that long game. Focus on getting people reading and talking about your books, and you know, don't be so concerned about the percentage. Like, oh my goodness, my percentage is small. It's like, no, look at the absolute number of dollars and the absolute number of readers, and about introducing your book to as many new people as possible. Yeah, exactly. The best the best returns are delayed and just have that long-term focus. That's excellent. All right, we're almost out of time, but do you have any final tips or advice for us? I think, Thomas, you hit on it. It's never been easier today in the last two or three, four or five years to be an author, to create a market, to create a book, and to put it out there. 10, 15 years ago, no, you were restricted with agents. You were restricted with gatekeepers. It's never been easier to become an author, become a good author. There's so many resources. The internet's full of resources, courses. Embrace everything, okay? Don't, don't be a closed shop. You know, look at, look at everything that you can do to, to help promote your brand and, and to write better books. You don't have to be traditionally published. You can be extremely successful being, being an indie author. But approach it as a long-term game and approach it in terms of you are here for a while and it's something that you are going to enjoy and just best of luck with it. Just do it. Just put the work in and do it. If you put the work in, the success will, will, will take care of itself. Simple as that. Well said. Well said. Uh, you can find out more about Jack at jklm.com. We'll have a link to his website and his book if you want to see his book that is, all of his books are doing well but one of his books is doing gangbusters it's selling like a traditionally published best-selling book and that is the mill point uh, road 
book that he mentioned, which we didn't even talk about, is being uh, potentially made into a TV series. It's under contract for Correct. TV. So don't let anyone tell you that going indie means that you can't get some of that Hollywood money. That's it. <laughs> yeah, so I'll have a link to that as well. Jack Ellum, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for having me. Our sponsor today is the Tax and Business Guide for Authors. We already mentioned this course earlier in the episode. And if you're wanting help forming an LLC, if you're wanting help finding out if you can take a tax-deductible trip or a tax-deductible vacation and to do research for your book, this course is invaluable. We talked about 19 different tax deductions you can take advantage of, uh, how to reduce your likelihood of being audited, and so much more. This course is taught by me, but mostly by my dad, who's Tom Umstadt, CPA, who has he has over 35 years of experience. He is why I include the junior in my name. And this is a, a really fun course. We, we, it really covers a lot of the business and tax side of the author journey. Not as fun as the craft and marketing work necessarily, but we have a lot of fun in the course. And you can learn more at authortaxtips.com. And patrons, if you're a patron of the podcast, just go to authormedia.com slash patron, log in, and you will find a link that will give you a 50% discount. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Cheryl Elton, author of Pathway of Peace, Living in a Growing Relationship with Christ. Learn key areas of life that help cultivate enduring peace, including handling stress, quieting your mind, prayer, and forgiveness. As we learn to partner with Christ and live in his presence, we will not only experience his peace in our hearts, but also find freedom from the worries and fears that so often plague us. Cheryl Elton, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for helping keep the show on the air. If you would like to support the show but can't afford to become a patron, you can. Just share this episode with one writer you think would find it helpful. And in some quick show news, episode 300 is next week. In fact, we are having a special live airing of this episode. So you're invited to listen to me record the episode live. It's uh, September 30th at 4 p.m. Central Time, 2021. And if you do attend live, you'll have a chance to come on screen and ask questions. And this is your chance to have your voice on the show. If your question gets selected, you may hear your voice on the Novel Marketing Podcast next week. So we will have an edited version of that live recording that will air in the next episode. So for those of you listening in the future, just listen to the next episode and you will hear episode 300 of the Novel Marketing Podcast. And we'll have registration information at authormedia.com. So just scroll down in the show notes for this episode. I've got all the info for episode 300 right there. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, production by Lori Christine, and the blog post is by Shauna Lettler. And I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find that blog post version of this episode, go to authormedia.com slash 299. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.